The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Let's get to our guest, Barbara Ann Bernard, Chief Investment Officer at Wincrest Capital. Barbara, we've just spent a lot of time talking about the energy crisis in in Europe, and it is leading countries to make some uh, uncharacteristic decisions, maybe even unorthodox. Uh, A good example is Germany extending the life of two nuclear reactors. And at the root of this is the war in Ukraine. Is this now back to being issue number one, displacing even inflation? I think it is. You know, um, we're actually pretty bullish on nuclear. I mean, think next gen and your your energy are great ways to play this. But um, effectively, unfortunately, what's happening is ESG is becoming a luxury, and people are really concerned about how they're going to feed themselves and stay warm this winter. And it's only going to get worse. And this is a real problem because if you look at places like Germany, um, which are sort of you know export dependent and a real engine of growth typically for Europe. They're dealing with really high energy costs, which are eating into margins. So you can say, okay, but the euro is lower, but the escalation in energy has been, um, you know, uh, much more impactful than than the depreciation of the currency. So we're pretty bearish, unfortunately, on Europe right now. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, who are they exporting to? China, and as we were just talking about on the show earlier. Um, you know, ch- demand in China is slowing and there's just a lot of uncertainty there. So right. the energy transition is, um, it's, it's a real problem right now. And I think it is, it is displacing some of the inflation fears, Even inflation fears coming down, but the energy crisis worries going up. Yeah, Barbara, Stephen Engel here. Is it too optimistic to think that Europe can transition to renewables quicker as it needs to? I think they have to, because it, it's no longer a luxury, it's a necessity. Um, you know, I live in the Bahamas where we have a balance of payments crisis when we can't afford electricity and the world's facing that. Look at a Sri Lanka. Um, so the irony is it will accelerate, in my opinion, the energy transition because, you know, if it's solar, it's a renewable source and, uh, and you know, and the price is controllable. So I think it's making every country rethink the necessity um, uh, of, tra- of transitioning. It's becoming urgent. I wonder how demand is holding up in the United States. The U.S. is clearly uh, closer to energy independent uh, by a long shot than mm-hmm. either China or Europe. Um, but, you know, the slowdown in China and the slowdown in Europe 
has to affect the U.S. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of demand? In terms of demand for demand energy? Demand destruction. The US, well, just general oh, demand destruction yeah. in the United States. That's a big issue, too. Yeah, so certainly, you know, a, a stronger dollar is not going to help their exports, right? And so everyone talks about um, pent-up savings in the U.S., but savings for who? Um, you know, inflation has really eroded the purchasing power of the lower-end consumer who inflation hurts the most. So um, I think eroding savings are being eroded. I think multiples have contracted, but I don't think we've seen EPS contraction yet. Um, and so although we might have a good jobs number, to me, it's sort of looking in the rearview mirror. When I read, um, you know, the earnings announcements of companies, I just read layoff after layoff. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, how sustainable is it would be my question. So, so do you think that we will see a ratcheting down of earnings expectations? Absolutely. Um, if, you know, the canary in the coal mine um, is usually credit spreads. And in the last 10 days, if you look at what they've done, they've absolutely blown out in a two standard deviation way. And it's not only the pace at which they've blown out, it's also the degree to which they've blown out. Credit spreads are now at 1,200 basis points. And every time that's happened in 2012, 15, 16, and mm. 2020, you've had an earnings recession. Of course, we talked about the European energy crisis before the break. Uh, and we're also on Central Bank Watch this week. Brian just mentioned the RBA expected to hike by 50 basis points. The ECB is um, meeting on Thursday. Uh, given the, the energy crisis that we just talked about, can the ECB in your estimation, afford to do maybe 50 basis points instead of 75? Or is the ECB simply too late to the hiking party? Well, given their inflation is higher in the U.S., right, it's at 9.1%, I think they're going to go through with a hike. And the real dilemma for any central banker today is if you take all the negative forces that um, we're seeing in the world, and you have to assume that it's going to cost about 3 to 5% of GDP. So if you're taking 3 to 5% of GDP out, that's money that you don't have, that's purchasing power that's not there for any non-discretionary expense. So the conundrum right now, if you're a central banker, is do you, in the short term, increase interest rates to kill inflation, or do you keep interest rates low enough to stimulate growth for the future, because low rates have not only an impact on the stock market, but also on the investment decision of companies. And what we need to do is create growth. Right. So we're living in a world that is seduced by the pressures of elections and what they've said, and they're all focusing on inflation. And until they admit that actually some inflation is necessary and we need to live with a higher rate of sustained inflation to not only deflate our debt, but to stimulate growth, we're really in a quandary. And it's not easy. It's a good point. And, you know, if you look at the Fed, even the Fed, even though we don't have the same types of uh, issues that Europe has, uh, there's nothing really in the Fed mandate that, that says 2%. I mean, it's right. stable prices. And, you know, in, in turbulent times like this, I suppose you could make the argument that even 3% was relatively acceptable or, or stable. Do you, do you ex- I, I suppose it's hard to say, do you expect the Fed to change? Because, you know, this is just too close to Jackson Hole. But is that coming? I think so. Like, I think the Fed has stopped giving guidance because they're tired of being wrong. I mean, the first they told you it was transitory and it wasn't. Right now, they've sort of dropped guidance. I mean, these are unprecedented times. And I think it's okay to, to be an authentic leader and say, we're doing our best and we don't know.
you know, and well, uh, nobody knows. Yeah, but, but if you look I, at, to, to be to be fair, I mean, three percent's a long way from where we are. They would still have to be aggressive until you start getting closer to that. Right, but then they're going to tank the economy. So it's the greatest game of chicken you've ever seen. So, you know, I think I think they will. You know, they do want to get a handle on inflation because they lose credibility if they don't. And then the data is going to get so bad that they're going to have to reverse course. But I don't see that happening right now. And um, and it's not until that happens that I will get more constructive on markets. Barbara, we have a couple minutes left. I want to talk about China. What is your take right now, given COVID zero, given the the fact yeah. that, of course, this is an economy that is slowing and 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 increasingly shutting itself off from the global economy? Absolutely. I mean, I think China right now is characterized by uncertainty. You know, historically, I've really liked the market, but you know, the tech names are sort of untouchable right now. Um, and, uh, you know, just today you had Tencent disposing of stakes. So there's some, you know, headwinds there. Um, we've only added two positions all year in our long, in our hedge fund on the long side. And one was a Chinese stock. And so, you know, the upside downside skew has to be so great for us to get interested right now. And the stock was EDU and it was trading at the value of cash on its balance sheet. So we were getting the operating business for free. So that's what it takes for an investor like me to get interested by China right now. Um, the other stock that I think is kind of interesting because I, I believe in the energy transition tailwinds is BYD. It's sold off, you know, double digit um, recently on the news that Warren Buffett was reducing his stake. But it's not a bad company and fundamentally nothing has changed. And so for a long term investor, I think it's a unique opportunity. Yeah, that's an interesting call. You wonder whether China is kind of closing itself off from the rest of the world in a sense that it will always be important from a trading uh, standpoint for other countries. But you almost wonder whether culturally and socially and and uh, politically that uh, countries are, are will be thinking less of China going forward. Well, every, the world's becoming more nationalistic, right? And and this is one of the sources of inflation. Just in time has become just in case. And people are weaponizing their natural resources. Um, you know, China supplies 70% of the world's solar panels, for example. Right. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a very interesting time. The world can't ignore China, but China is going to take, take care of China first. Barbara Ann Bernard, Chief Investment Officer at Windcrest Capital. Always good to have you on sharing your insights. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.